What's going on, everybody? Welcome to yet another episode of the Core Consults RX podcast. And uh, I was a little busy, so I didn't get the camera stuff set up like I was trying to. So AJ is just chilling up here with us today on camera, getting some FaceTime, much deserved. Yeah. Hopefully making the podcast look better. Well, he usually has his own camera, so this is really a step down because he's having to (laughs) share it with us. That is true, but it's okay. AJ, how's school going? It's going, as long as it keeps going. Yeah, yeah. You back back in the swing of it now? Oh, yeah. Good. Good, good, good. Cool. Uh, Everything on your end? It's good. We had some new students start this month. Did you? Excited, yeah. I had one as well. Good. I I didn't realize if it's a sister, younger sister of a student that I had like four or five years ago. No way. Yeah. And I didn't put the two and two together as far as the last name goes. And then she's like, yeah, yeah, my sister. And I was like, oh, yeah, now you guys, now I realize you guys look identical. <laughs> I remember having rotations. So my brother was in med school a couple years, uh, or we were at the same time that I was in pharmacy school, but he had, they start rotations earlier than us. Mm-hmm. So he rotated with and worked with some pharmacists that ended up being my preceptors. And uh, it ended up okay. That's cool. Well, he's really smart, so they all had high expectations, but Cole. I was able to carry his name pretty far with those rotations. Cole, I think you're smart, dude. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, no problem, dude. <laughs> AJ, say something nice about Cole. <laughs> it's there. He's there. Uh, so, today, we are going to do another episode that is accredited, um, thanks to our friends at FreeCE.com. Um, we are going to be covering menstruation-related disorders. Um, everything from amenorrhea to dysmenorrhea. Um, we're going to discuss PCOS. So obviously none of these are going to be in super in-depth, uh, you know, the, the content will kind of stay more summary, but we're going to try to cover several different, uh, topics tonight all in the same episode. Um, so if you are a freece.com uh, unlimited member, then make sure after you listen to the episode, um, there will be a link in the show notes, or you can just go to their website and look at the content. You'll see podcasts as a whole it's a kind of um, learning uh, module now under, uh, under the tab learn. You can click there as well, or the show notes will have the, the link. Um, and then that will take you to the episode um, in the, or the list of our episodes. Um, click on this one, and then it'll ask you for a password, which is going to be HORMONE, um, all capital letters, and that will allow you to do the post-activity test. Uh, after that, you'll get your one hour of ACP-accredited continuing education to use towards your renewal um, for your license, that is. Um, if you are not a free CE member, uh, we obviously encourage you to check out their unlimited membership Um, They've been running some really good deals right now as far as the price. There's also a discount code that you can utilize even after those prices are over where you can get uh, a membership um, at a discounted price by using our uh, passcode that will be in the show notes as well. And uh, they have a ton of content. You will never get bored. So definitely make sure you check them out. And we appreciate them for continuing to work with us. So you guys want to get this topic rolling? Yeah, let's do it. It's been a while since we've done a women's health that I can recall. I think so. Yeah. I think um, last time we made the joke of like, why are the three of us yeah. doing women's health and we should, and then we didn't take our own advice and no. kind of waited until too late to schedule a, a female go, a co-host yeah. for this episode. So sorry, y'all. We're going to do our best and um, bear with us. We say that every time. Don't we, we do. I yeah. know. Mm. I should just ask my wife to be on the podcast. That would have been, pro- been an idea. That would have been nice. But she's downstairs feeding our son, so it's well. okay. Well, she gets a pass too. Priorities. <laughs> She's got to know that the podcast is more important. Yeah, that's that is true. <laughs> we need to establish that now. <laughs> you got to establish the boundaries. <laughs> um, yeah. So, like Mike said, we're going to touch on multiple different um, uh, disorders. Um, 
we'll start with amenorrhea. For those of you who paid attention in your medical terminology class, obviously that is lack of menstruation. Um, specifically, no menstrual bleeding uh, over a 90-day period is kind of how they diagnose it. There's primary and secondary amenorrhea. Primary um, is less common and might be more concerning in a um, adolescent, but it's absence of menses by age 15 um, in women who have never menstruated before. So that's why it's primary. This is less than 0.1% of the general population. Not super common. Then secondary amenorrhea would be absence of menses for three months in a woman with prior regular cycles or for six months um, in someone with irregular menses previously. So uh, a little more common, 3 to 4% of the general population. Uh, it occurs more frequently in women who are under 25 years old. Um, and also uh, it's, it's more likely if they have a history of menstrual irregularities. Um, as well as those involved in competitive athletics. And we'll talk about that a little bit uh, as we go. And I, I think one of the important things to remember is that amenorrhea itself is sort of the sign of a disorder, but not a, a definitive diagnosis. Right. Typically caused by an underlying etiology that we need to address and, and hopefully fix uh, in order to you know, get the menstrual cycle back on track. Um, so some broad categories of amenorrhea etiology include anatomical causes. Uh, that could be everything from pregnancy, uh, which is a, uh, creates a very quick, uh, fix to the problem or the concern or, or gives you a definitive answer to the yeah. concern of amenorrhea. If, hopefully that's usually the first thing we do, uh, in clinic is do a pregnancy test. Yeah. Um, cause that, uh, is a much better outcome in most cases than, um, uh, you know, thinking something horrible is going on. So make sure you don't forget the standard pregnancy test, but also uh, could be, you know, uh, uterine structural abnormalities, things like that as well. Um, it can also come from endocrine disturbances, um, which leads to chronic uh, a, um, anovulation. Uh, it also could be from an ovarian insufficiency or failure. Um, those are kind of the three sort of uh, broad categories, and there's a bunch of different things under each of those that can lead to it. Um, we won't go into, uh, I think we covered this when we talked about um, hormonal contraception as far as the um, process of, you know, the menstrual cycle itself and the, um, the levels of estrogen, progesterone, um, and kind of how they interact and respond uh, appropriately to follicle-stimulating hormone or luteinizing hormone um, and, and how that whole kind of process goes. But basically when, when something in that process is out of sync, obviously it leads to a disruption and um, the, the endometrial growth and shedding and um, can lead to amenorrhea. So a lot of the treatment options for amenorrhea, especially depending on the underlying condition, um, sort of circle back to uh, dealing with hormonal contraception and um, things like that. Right. You'll see that as a recurrent theme for treatment for a lot of these that we talk about. Um, the pathophysiology, um, it can be dependent on what organ system or specific condition is going on. Um, for instance, with um, the uterus, there can be congenital uterine abnormalities that can cause amenorrhea. Uh, with the ovaries, there can be gonadal dysgenesis, or I'm sorry, dysgenesis. Um, this is frequently associated with Turner syndrome. This is common. Uh, also, chemotherapy or radiation treatment um, can affect the ovaries negatively and cause amenorrhea. Uh, and then there's the, um, the um, anterior pituitary um, Piece. So there can be pituitary prolactin secreting adenomas that are going to increase prolactin um, and suppress the um, hypothalamus pituitary um, ovarian axis. 
there's also medication. So we'll go through a few specific ones, but I always think of antipsychotics as well as verapamil um, that can increase prolactin and suppress the HPO axis as well. Uh, with the hypothalamus, this is kind of uh, how we mentioned competitive athletes um, exercise can decrease pulsatile gonadotropin-releasing hormone secretion, thus decreasing um, follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone secondary to low body fat. Um, and similarly, that can be associated with uh, weight loss related to eating disorders as well. And it's kind of the same mechanism. Um, no relation between the two as far as the cause, as far as, you know, why they happen. But um, as far as what happens down the line, um, that can be the same. And then PCOS would be related to the hypothalamus as well. So from a symptom standpoint, obviously the first big one that we're, you know, addressing is the, the lack of menses as well is kind of where the amenorrhea definition comes from. However, there's oftentimes associated uh, complaints of vaginal dryness or decreased libido and even infertility uh, that come along with amenorrhea as well. Um, some other things to kind of keep in mind, like Cole was saying, the weight loss and or even weight gain as well. If there's been huge, big fluctuations in body weight, um, you, you want to make note of that. Um, so it's important to kind of ask the, the question and, and also look back maybe on the, the patient's weights um, that have been kind of trended over appointments if they've if there's a patient that's, you know, you've seen before, because if they are having some kind of eating disorder, they may not want to, you know, bring that up or anything yeah. like that. So just kind of looking at their weight over time. Um, other signs of like androgen excess can be important too. So looking for things like, uh, the presence of excessive acne, um, you know, hair either growing where it's not supposed to grow or hair loss, um, like, mm -hmm. you know, alopecia, you know, hair where it's supposed to be not growing, um, things of those nature that basically are typical, like androgenic, um, effects that we would expect. Um, cause that's one of obviously, especially in like PCOS, things like that, those, the androgenic activity can definitely lead to this as well. And those androgenic processes will probably be, um, noticeable. Isn't it just so sad <clears throat> for men? I mean, that, um, that's just a part of having androgen is just losing your hair. It is. We have it so hard. <laughs> I, I, I tell you what. Yeah. As we're talking about menstruation related yeah. disorders, I'm complaining Cole, about losing my hair. <laughs> see, see what Cole does. He brings it back around. This is unbelievable. This is a women's health podcast. Uh, episode Cole. As we age, I have to think about it more. And no, more. it is bad. I see myself like in pictures and stuff. Um, in fact, one of my students took like a picture when they were over here doing the uh, doing the podcast with us and took a picture of me like a so like I was just adjusting the things and I, like had my head down. I was like, oh no, I'm so bald. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my dad has been um, like actually bald since he was probably my age 28 really? 29 yeah he's just started to lose it so bad he shaved it and that's a, see that's the move you just gotta let it go you just gotta let it go it's i we're mean gonna, it's a, we're it's gonna hand it's a shock at first i can only imagine you know you have to get a tan on it because it's got to be really white you know yeah for me at least for uh, for cold at least <laughs> for me yeah so aj are you gonna shave your head probably not yeah i'm gonna hold on for a while hold on for a while aj's already got the idea he's like let people know what i look like bald now oh, yeah. <laughs> and then that's then that way worst case no surprise Okay. I'm not looking forward to it. <clears throat> Jay, you want to run through the lab test we should be getting? Let's do it. Always first, and that's what I've checked with amenorrhea is the pregnancy test. Um, it's one of those things that, it, you know, the, the first sign is the first couple of weeks after you're supposed to be having your menses is, hey, let's let's see if I'm pregnant. If not, um, the next thing I would definitely check is the serum uh, follicle stimulating hormone and the luteinizing hormone to check to make sure there's no uh, further hypothalamic issues, uh, secondary uh, amenorrhea issues, and then prolactin as well. Um, one of the things that we're going to move into is hyperprolactinemia. 
Uh, that's my favorite word ever. It's the word of the month for me. Uh, but prolactin is one of those uh, suppressive hormones that can also lead to the decrease in estrogen and things. And then if we suspect uh, PCOS or other hyperandrogenic uh, conditions, then we would definitely have to test for the free and total testosterone, uh, the dehydropinaandrotestosterone, uh, fasting, fasting glucose, and then a lipid panel as well. I was waiting for that word, and I was just going to point out that it has to be hyperprolactin. DHPT. Dehydroepiandrosterone. There you go. Dehydroepiandrosterone. Yeah. Close enough. I love it. Good job, boys. <laughs> Nailed it. Push. Nailed it. Um, These are my favorites. So we meant to be your new favorite. We mentioned antipsychotics. So now we're talking about hyperprolactinemia and medications that can cause that. We mentioned antipsychotics. We mentioned verapamil. Uh, specifically, the typical antipsychotics are, are more likely um, older ones like prochlorperazine, chlorpromazine, also haloperidol, uh, and then uh, atypical antipsychotics like risperidone, that annoying saying about it being more typical. Um, so the it can, it the can, most typical atypical? Yeah, but I wasn't going to say it. Why? Because it's like annoying. Everybody says it. Is that annoying? Okay. Sorry, guys. You said that last time. Did I? Yeah. You were like, you know that overused phrase, it's the most typical atypical. Oh, well. I don't remember that. I was just trying to, you know, agree with your you, sentiment. You didn't want me to make fun of you. You didn't want you to make fun of me for saying Oh, sorry, dude. I don't yeah. mean to be a bully. All right. Well, I went the other way around. I made fun of you. Yeah. That's how rude. <laughs> um, then antidepressants, but more old, like not the common SSRIs and things like that. Clomipramine, which is a MAO. T TCA. It's a TCA. And I think that's one you typically won't see nowadays, no. except I will say that there I have are, seen it, but yeah. it was in like an older patient who was on it for a long time. It, well, and there is good evidence with that one as an adjunct therapy to like fluvoxamine and OCD patients. That's, oh, yeah. that's kind of where I tend to think of that one. So in those patients, if you're dealing with, you know, those types of situations, I think that that way be one to at least be aware of. Since we don't deal with that med very often, that can be an easily overlooked yep. thing. Yep. Uh, and then GI meds like metoclopramide as well, which I think is that's that one's interesting too because it's like the metoclopramide it already shares like the tardive dyskinesia, you know, EPS type symptoms with. Uh, it's not the cleanest drug. No, well, it's it's got like the similar, you know, from a mechanism standpoint, structural it's like, standpoint, it's like an similar antipsychotic. to the antipsychotic, but yet dopamine used very very differently. Um, but yeah, that one I always think of. Uh, I feel like that's we always think tardive dyskinesia with that one, but we forget that that's also the concern with long-term use of metoclopramide is that increase in prolactin level yep easily overlooked i've definitely seen patients that are on that drug way too long yep. you put on refills and just never never taken off but we didn't overlook it we didn't overlook i'm it. sure there's other things we're overlooking <laughs> i would say definitely we probably. didn't overlook this though <laughs> go us <laughs> all right so um amenorrhea first thing we're checking pregnancy tests making sure that's negative um if if it is negative, then we're kind of assessing um, a possible underlying cause, uh, specifically, you know, getting a patient history and kind of like their uh, social history as well. You know, if they're doing sports or how often they're working out, things like that, um, because it is uh, going to be important to assess for any, you know, exercise over exercise uh, as well as um, looking for any signs or, or, you know, them explaining any kind of uh Situation that would lead you to think that they may have some sort of an eating disorder, um, anorexia, bulimia, something along those lines. Um, if that's the case, then we can often get by with simply correcting the you know, lifestyle that is leading to that. And then oftentimes they uh, will have an improvement in their symptoms. Um, 
If not, then we're typically going the the estrogen uh, progesterone combo route, um, usually just a standard um, combo hormonal contraceptive option, and we'll go into that in a little bit more detail. Uh, if they have a uh, hyperprolactin level, then uh, we are going to potentially start a dopamine agonist, which we'll discuss. Um, but again, that's kind of, we, we want to address the they, they, whatever caused that to begin with, um, if we if it was a medication versus a, something like PCOS or what have you, um, if they're if they do have PCOS, we're tro- we're sort of looking at whether or not they are wanting to become pregnant. So if they found out they had PCOS because of the infertility or something along those lines, then we have to decide if they're actually trying to become pregnant or not, and that can change our our uh, strategies for therapy, and we'll discuss that as well. Um, and then also kind of looking at hey if they um, you know, have they just, have they done, it started a different kind of, you know, hormonal contraceptive? Have they just gotten uh, a majoxyprogesterone, um, you know, like Depo-Provera, mm-hmm. and then no one told them that after a few doses that may lead to amenorrhea? It's, you know, it's one of those things that getting a good history um, can help us kind of figure out. It may be something simple. It doesn't always mean it's a catastrophic hormonal imbalance or anything like that. But um, I guess we'll start off with... Uh, um, you know, we already mentioned the anorexia or excessive exercise. Um, if we are going to go the medication route, um, let's say it's an athlete who just can't, um, doesn't want to, you know, stop training like they're training or what have you. Um, then, uh, typical combined, um, hormonal contraceptive is what we would go with. Um, the same kind of adverse effects though, that we would think about with, you know, regular hormonal contraception for anybody um, is what we would still have to be at least a little concerned with um, in the case of, you know, a patient treating amenorrhea. So, you know, increased um, risk of uh, thrombosis and triglycerides can go up. Things like uh, potential for hypertension, weight gain um, can change mood and even lead to depression in some patients. So just kind of making sure at least the patient understands the risks and, and whatnot. And it may even be a situation where that keeps them from wanting to go on therapy and maybe adjust in the lifestyle management um, by itself. Uh, depending on how old the patient is, you, you may see um, some recommendations for like an estradiol patch or um, some sort of like a Premarin, like equine estrogen um, conjugate, but those are typically going to be safe for patients who are much older who have had like a hysterectomy or something along those lines. Um, we typically uh, want to use the combo estrogen and progesterone um, in, in patients who have an intact uterus to avoid unnecessary complications down the road and un- unnecessary risks. Right. If you, uh, I think we have an episode maybe six to 12 months ago that we talked about hormonal replacement therapy. I think it was about a year ago. So check yeah. that episode out. We go into a lot more detail on that, obviously. But we would expect with the combo hormonal contraceptive for menses to kind of um, resume within one to two months of them starting therapy. Uh, obviously, it's going to be you know a little bit different depending on the, each patient to patient, but um, it is something that uh, that's the general idea of how we how, how quickly we'd expect the patient to respond. Yep. Uh, and then another cause: hyperprolactinemia. Before we talk about that, did I tell you that um, I had a student just shadow me the other day, not even on rotation with me, um, who says she's listened like all our episodes? Not crazy. All of them? Well, she says she listens to it on her commute, like back and forth from wherever she lives in oh, North Carolina. Sweet. Yeah. So shout, awesome. out, shout out to her if she's listening. Yeah. It's nice to to uh, you know hear from listeners just randomly when they're students with you. Yeah, that is cool. Um, but yeah, hyperprolactinemia. So if you can't. Or, well, the first option could be de- uh, discontinuing or switching the offending agent if it's increasing your prolactin levels. 
if that's not possible or if that doesn't work, um, there is a way to treat it. So dopamine agonists would be that way. There's a couple of options, um, old drugs that you've probably heard of, bromocryptine and cabergeline. Um, bromocryptine works. Uh, it normalizes prolactin levels in about 58% of affected um, women, but cabergeline has the same effect um, within about 85% of women. So it generally would be preferred, I would think. Tends to be a little bit more... Um, there are some, are some adverse effects to be aware of, GI upset, orthostatic hypotension, headache, nasal congestion, and you do need to do some labs. So uh, baseline and weekly prolactin levels should be measured with dose uh, increases until the menses resumes. And then if it does, you still continue therapy for a time, 6 to 12 months following the return of menses and continued normalization of the prolactin levels. And then it could be discontinued. Yeah. Um, and we'll save, we're going to do PCOS as a completely separate uh, topic. So we'll come back um, to that one because that's, it's not always just an amenorrhea that's the, the symptom. Um, but the other thing I want to address before we move on is uh, if a patient, you know, in the case of an adolescent patient, um, if they are having amenorrhea, that needs something that needs to definitely be uh, promptly identified as far as the cause because um, amenorrhea, especially in adolescent, is could be indicative of hypoestrogenism, um, which can negatively affect bone development. And uh, so um, in addition to sort of treating and eliminating the underlying cause of the amenorrhea, making sure patients, especially adolescent patients, um, are receiving adequate amounts of calcium and vitamin D to hopefully uh, aid in their bone strength and development. And then um, Obviously, with the estrogen being so important for bone health, um, and if the patient is hypo uh, or has hypoestrogenism, then we are going to uh, potentially give estrogen replacement. Um, again, that's out of the out of the realm of this uh, topic, but um, that may be the case, especially in the adolescent patients. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Switching uh, to the other side of the spectrum now. Yeah, you want to start that one off, AJ? Let's do it. So, moving into that heavy menstrual bleeding very familiar with this the menstrual bleeding <laughs> defined as, defined as greater than and his 80. girlfriend just broke up <laughs> terrible terrible greater than 80 milliliters which is about this much uh per cycle of menstrual bleeding lasting greater than seven days per cycle so that's just over the course of seven days if you're losing 80 milliliters or more you should uh notify your doctor or healthcare provider that you're having sort of heavier flows than normal um, hematologic causes could be Wildeprint factor, uh, that's factor seven, uh, defect that causes the impaired platelet adhesion and increased bleeding time. Um, another hepatic cause would be cirrhosis, and so you'd have damaged uh, estrogen metabolism there. And then endocrine causes would be hypothyroidism, of course, with the alterations in the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. Mm-hmm. There we yeah, go. Nailed it. Killing it. <laughs> And then, of course, just your regular uterine causes, uh, fibroids, endometrial polyps, and uh, gynecologic cancers yeah. of the sort. Yeah. I think the cirrhosis one is always, I always keep that, like, that always, you know, pops in my mind because, like, when we're treating hep C, um, one of the things we'll look at, especially in a patient with cirrhosis or suspected cirrhosis, we'll get an INR um, or, a, you know, a PT level and kind of because the INR usually will start to go up the more fibrosis or cirrhotic the patient becomes. Um, and then, uh, I think the big thing with, with heavy menstrual bleeding, um, is, you know, we always think of like the iron deficiency, those types of things that we're worried about, but also just the decrease on quality of life, um, from a social professional, you know, family, um, you know, there's lots of different aspects that can really affect the quality of life. So this may be something that, uh, yeah, is, is really bringing the patient into a negative spot from a, 
you know, mental stand, mental health standpoint. And so it needs to be um, addressed and obviously uh, treated. Right. So it's important to note that a diagnosis can be made based on those subjective factors versus like if they didn't quite hit the ADMLs for seven days. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's such a textbook like yeah. way of saying that, but like it very rarely is that going to be actually utilized clinically. So um, at least in primary care, I should say, I am, you know, but uh, yeah, I think from a patient history standpoint is really what that's, you know, where that's kind of made from. So you would want to get some baseline labs um, in this instance. So complete blood count first, also ferritin levels. This goes back to some of the concerns Mike was mentioning with iron deficiency anemia, uh, hemoglobin, hematocrit, and then if the patient has potential for a coagulation disorder, you want to get some labs related to that, uh, PT, APTT, INR, and then some factors like factor, um, some clotting factors like factor eight and factor 10. Um, some other diagnostic tests that might be needed depending on the situation, uh, pelvic ultrasound or MRI, pap smear, endometrial biopsy, or a sauna histogram. Um, and I, so I think the next, you know, kind of step, once you've established the fact that the patient does have heavy menstrual bleeding, they want to start treatment. Um, the next question is going to be, do they desire contraception? Um, cause if they do, then we're going to go that route of hormonal therapy. If not, um, then actually the first line is NSAIDs, um, especially during menses. Some patients will end up taking them, you know, throughout the month, but at least during the, uh, during menses to kind of alleviate, um, the heavy menstrual bleeding during the time, obviously. But, uh, I, this always, at first thought, like you might be thinking like, well, it doesn't, doesn't NSAIDs cause the risk of bleed? Um, and the reason for the NSAIDs being useful in this particular case is because um, the certain prostaglandins are elevated in patients who are having heavy menstrual bleeding. And so that's what you're actually blocking. So it's not, don't think of it in regards like we would with a GI bleed or something along those lines. Um, this is basically blocking or reducing those prostaglandins that are directly stimulating the, the menstrual bleeding, the heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, right pathology also um you probably patients who are self-treating would think to go to NSAIDs if they're having dysmenorrhea or pain mm -hmm. um and i probably wouldn't think of it as much with the, wouldn't think that it could help with yeah. heavy menstrual bleeding but, but it definitely can. does i think naproxen seems to be a good one because it's so non-selective um as well instead of going one way or the other it covers a lot of our um, prostaglandins regardless of um, their origin. So, and says, uh, the proxen 550, uh, or anaprox DS BID, um, at least during the pro during the time of menses, if not longer, um, or the, is the one commonly used. Sorry, Cole, I jumped in front of you. No, that's fine. Uh, there's also, um, tranexamic acid. It's branded as Listida. So this is an interesting drug and this is the only thing I've seen it used for. Is this the only thing? So they, they, I believe they can use it in uh, certain like trauma, um, situations mm, and things as well. Very interesting. Um, so it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, a pro clot drug. It displaces plasminogen from fibrin and this results in inhibition of fibrinolysis. So has some adverse effects associated with it, abdominal pain, headache, back pain, muscle cramps. Um, but because it's kind of pro clot, then it would be contraindicated in patients with an active or a history of thromboembolic disease. Um, interactions, the effects, um, Maybe in of listeria may be increased by uh, estrogen uh, and progestin derivatives, which um, is uh, significant because a lot of these patients might be taking those. Well, and I think too, it's one of those things. That's why we want to go down one path. Or one the or other. the other. Yeah. I mean, NSAIDs is one thing, but if you go this route, you definitely don't want to be using them together in most cases. Yep. So, 
um, the last thing we want to do is increase the risk of a clot. <laughs> yes. Um, the other option, if we are going the contraceptive route, uh, would be technically speaking, any um, combined hormonal contraceptive can be used. However, there is um, one agent that is like approved specifically for heavy menstrual bleeding um, that is kind of unlike the others. Um, it's a quadrophasic um, derivative, so it's got estradiol valerate and um, di- Dianogest is the progesterone, and the brand name is called Natasia. Um, and it's separated by um, basically days one and two. There's three milligrams of the estradiol component, then days three to seven. Some of the estrogen component goes down as the progesterone becomes um, is introduced. Eight through 24, um, the, the estrogen stays steady as the progesterone goes up. And then days 25 to 26, estradiol is down um, even further, and the progesterone is discontinued. And then only days 27 and 28 of the placebo. So it's a it's one of the only hormonal contraceptive combos that is like the most similar to like the actual um, you know flow and, and, and rise and fall of these uh, estrogen and progesterone naturally. Um, so that's kind of like its claim to fame for this particular situation, especially. And then you might be thinking that there are certain contraceptives that we use that can effectively. Um cause no bleeding because they can prevent a uh, menstrual cycle they induce amenorrhea they basically induce amenorrhea and so you would think that that would be beneficial in this situation so one of those are the levonorgestrel intrauterine devices um, branded as myrena skyla kylina you've probably seen commercials for them they're generally considered the most effective treatment to reduce menstrual flow Um, a 70 to 90 percent reduction in blood loss has been observed with its use um it's also resulted in the postponing or canceling of um, endometrial ablations that were uh, surgeries that were scheduled or hysterectomies um, due to its effectiveness. Yeah. So at least if nothing else, buying you some more time before undergoing surgery in some cases. Some severe cases. I, yeah. I think it's important to make sure that we know that this is the progesterone IUDs, though, instead of just saying the term IUD by itself, because yeah. Paragard, the copper IUD, is definitely not going to help not with this. Help. That actually makes causes the worst <laughs> type of... Uh, menstrual bleeding um, compared to any other device. So um, make sure that used. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most effective as far as like contraception goes. We use Uh it all the time at uh, our clinic. Um, Our women's health, you know, uh, nurse practitioner uses it quite a bit, but it does uh, very, very effective for contraception. Um, Definitely leads to heavy bleeding though. Mm. So um, don't get that confused with the progesterone for this, uh, for for treating heavy menstrual bleeding. You will be sorely disappointed (laughs) and your patient will not be happy. No. Um, they also have uh, progestin-only uh, tablets um, that are an option, depending on um, how long of a course you'd want to treat. There's some debate there, but the ones that are typically utilized are norethindrone acetate um, or medoxyprogesterone acetate or Provera. Um, the kind of the older thought process was that they would do um, a sickly progesterone therapy for 14 days. Um, that would help to reduce menstrual blood flow. However, um, depending on what study you looked at, um, it was a, a reduction in blood flow from only 2% up to about 30%, depending on, again, the study. But um, when they started looking at longer courses where they administered the progesterone um, for 21 days, uh starting on day five after the onset of menses. And then um, when they kind of followed up with those patients, they had a reduction in menstrual blood loss in from 63% up to 78% um, in those patients. So seems to be a little bit more effective, um, possibly um, 
more side effects associated with it, but um, does seem to be more effective. And um, from what, at least in my anecdotal experience of working with our um, providers, it seems to be the course that we typically prefer. Yeah. So overall, it looks like you just want with NSAIDs is a reduction in blood loss over uh, one to two months. And then with the tranexamic acid, uh, just a reduction in blood loss with menses. Uh, you should notice it over the first month and then with improved hemoglobin and hematocrit uh, after three months of therapy compared to the baseline. And then with the uh, combined hormonal contraceptives, uh, the levonorgestrel IUDs and progestin, not the cyclic, uh, reduction in blood loss. And the cyclic. And the cyclic. Yeah, yeah. And the cyclic. A reduction in blood loss with menses over the first uh, to two months of therapy and then improved hemoglobin with hematocrit over three months of therapy compared to the baseline. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing is to let patients know the time frame because like don't give them realistic expectations of how quickly this is going to take effect and make sure that they understand it could take a couple couple months and a couple cycles yeah. to actually take take hold. Right. All right. PCOS. Finally getting there. We've mentioned it a few times. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah, so polycystic ovary syndrome is what it stands for. Um, in reproductive age women, it's the most common cause of abnormal uterine bleeding associated with ovulatory dysfunction. So you'll hear this referenced a lot um, when it comes to fertility. Um, so symptoms can include amenorrhea, oligomenorrhea, intermenstrual bleeding. Um, it's a disorder of androgen excess accompanied by ovulatory dysfunction um, and or polycystic ovarian morphology. It's often a, uh, often accompanied by insulin resistance. Um, so you'll hear us mention metformin as a treatment option. Risk factors um, for the metabolic syndrome. It, it's a risk factor for metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, You know, as far as the labs and kind of all that, we've already sort of mentioned. But again, with this, you're, you are expecting to see some of those androgenic um, signs as well. So acne, uh, maybe some unwanted weight gain, um, hair growth we're, we're not looking for. Uh, and then, you know, typically we're thinking infrequent or absence menses, but there are cases too, where depending on the patient, it, it, you could present with even heavy menstrual bleeding. So it's not always, um, the print, you know, uh, always amenorrhea or oligomenorrhea. So, um, the labs though are still going to be the same, like we've already talked about as far as the pregnancy testing and all that. Um, and then that's where like AJ had mentioned, maybe getting a, a freer total testosterone, um, some other hormonal levels, uh, fasting glucose, lipid panels, things of those of that nature. Yeah. Um, increased weight can be a risk factor. So as far as non-pharmacologic um, options, weight loss of 5 to 10% may result in improved menstrual regularity, ovulatory, dysfun- or ovulatory function, reduced hirsutism, increased insulin sensitivity, and may improve response to fertility treatments. The first line therapy is um, what we've been mentioning for a lot of them, which is a combined hormonal contraceptive, estrogen plus progesterone. Uh, It increases sex hormone binding globulin, which bind androgens and reduce their circulating free concentration. So that's how they're going to decrease um, the circulating androgens. Important to note that the um, contraceptive should contain less than or equal to 35 micrograms of ethanol estradiol. We'll talk about some options that have that. Um, and it should contain a progesterone that exhibits minimal androgenic side effects. So just so you know, progesterones um, can cause some androgenic side effects. There's some that are minimal or some that are anti-androgenic. So minimal would be norgestimate and desigestrel. And then drosperinone um, would be considered an anti-androgenic progesterone, uh, but it is potassium sparing. So you have to be uh, aware of monitoring their potassium um, 
for hyperkalemia with drosperinone. Um, so we'll go uh, just to give you a couple examples, like Cole said, of um, some of the uh, commercially available products that have these progesterones in it. Um, things like orthocycline or Sprintec um, is norgestimate, um, along with ethanyl estradiol. They also have orthotricycline, um, which is another one that's uh, has it's a tricyclic, obviously, or a um, triphasic, not tricyclic, <laughs> triphasic uh, um, formulation. Um, things that have uh, desogesterol would be like reclipsin. And then uh, Yasmin and Yaz are the two big ones. There's also Biaz and a few others that have Drosperinone as the progesterone. It's that, um, like Cole mentioned, the anti-androgenic um, component. But if the patient does not want to be in hormonal contraception, so let's say they're actually trying to become pregnant, um, because that's, some, like I said earlier, one of the ways that this kind of comes about is patients, you know, dealing with infertility. Um, if, they, if the process is them, you know, they're wanting to treat their symptoms, but... Um, and, and induce ovulation, um, and specifically in PCOS, we can use an aromatase inhibitor, um, Latrozole, or Femera is the brand name. Um, that would be the option to go with instead of the hormonal contraception, which is obviously not going to help <laughs> with fertility at all. Um, and so this is this is commonly used in this this regard nowadays. Um, adverse effects, um, you, you just kind of give patients the heads up on it would be things like um, GI complaints. It can lead to edema and flushing. It can affect cholesterol levels and increase the uh, lipid panels. You can see um, weight gain that's unwanted, even like things like bone pain. Um, and so definitely not a mild um, drug and definitely mm -hmm. something to let patients know like, hey, um, this is potentially going to lead to some side effects just so they can kind of uh, be ready for that. Um, but it's a, a, an option for patients that are seeking fertility. Yeah. With and there's PCOS. a lot more intrusive yes. fertility treatments too. So um, yeah, that's definitely not the only one. <laughs> right. So yeah, what about metformin? Yeah. I don't know. What do you think about metformin, AJ? I think it should be considered in women and uh, adolescents with PCOS like for management of the metabolic features when lifestyle changes um, aren't sort of achieved, that 5 to 10% weight loss. Um, it improves insulin sensitivity, and it can also reduce the circulating androgen concentrations and improve ovulation rates. Uh, there's a lot of different mechanisms that metformin Metformin's has. got a bunch. All but I think everything. that's, I've gotten, I got asked by my PA students, they were asking me about like, well, could we use something like a GLP-1 here? instead of metformin but that's the piece that i think we always forget about specifically in pcos is like the it actually can help reduce the circulating androgen so it's like that very right. you know it's not only nuanced, metabolic right it's the, that nuanced uh mechanism that metformin. that was has. the case we'd be giving them terzepatine right um and what this one thing this is off topic but it's something i um i ran into myself and uh i just um, i'll figure i'd share it i told my pa students the same thing um, if you ever have a patient that you're starting on metformin for, you know, diabetes typically, obviously, um, and they start having heavy menstrual bleeding after they start the metformin. Um, have you guys ever heard of that? Like mm, heard of that? Never heard of that. So uh, at first I hadn't either. Um, but the patient called me and explained that. And then I started thinking about it, um, after I talked to the patient and you know, this, the whole mechanism behind PCOS came into my mind. And so I started looking up case studies and it, uh, could be a sign, not always, not necessarily, but could be a sign that the patient has underlying like endometrial hyperplasia or some other more serious issue going on. Um, and so uh, I told the, call the patient and it turns out they do have, I won't go into it, but a history of certain gynecological cancer uh, history. So, hmm. um, they were calling their uh, OBGYN and getting, it, it was not the return of that, but, um, you know, they, they were, it was directly in dealing with the 
um, endometrial lining, things like that. So um, something that we don't tend to think about, especially in diabetes management and whatnot, but could uh, definitely help if they, you know, you've run into that, then it's not something to be overlooked. Very interesting. Throw that out there. It's new for me. Yeah. It's a good catch. Okay. So that's PCOS, right? And yeah, summary of it. Yeah. Summary of it. Let's move into dysmenorrhea. Um, so I kind of referenced it earlier, but that's pelvic pain and cramping occurring with or just prior to menses. So very common. Um, the prevalence rates um, range up to 90%, um, but they don't know exactly because it's not always reported, but um, up to 90%, very common. There's primary and secondary dysmenorrhea. So primary would be pain in the setting of normal pelvic anatomy and physiology. Um, the cause of the pain is multifactorial. The release of prostaglandins and leukotrienes into the menstrual fluid, um, causing an inflammatory response, and then vasopressin-mediated vasoconstriction. Uh, but then there's also secondary dysmenorrhea, which is pain associated with an underlying pelvic pathology. Um, you would want to be more concerned for this in women over 30 years of age without a history of dysmenorrhea previously. Um, they could be uh, endometriosis, um, a current history of pelvic inflammatory disease, fibroids, things like that. Um, but this is significant. It, it can cause a um, definite interference with work or school attendance, uh, lower overall quality of life. Uh, so treating this and getting it under control is, um, is important. All right, so um, we'll go through these individually, but uh, typically speaking, uh, we'll start off with some non-pharmacological interventions, which I will say, depending on the practice setting that you're working in, you know, if you're in primary care, family medicine, and their patients coming to you, they've most likely tried non-pharmacological yeah. options over the, you know, the, by themselves. Um, so mostly we're past this step, but just we'll say we're not. We do want to, you know, make sure our patients have at least attempted those. Uh, and if not, then, uh, you know, we can at least add those on to our first line options, which are typically uh, NSAIDs, uh, monthly NSAIDs beginning at the time of symptom onset. Um, if that is still not effective, then that's when we're going to start escalating to our hormonal contraceptive options, um, like we've been previously mentioning. Um, just to kind of mention some of the non-pharmacological pharmacological treatments, uh, the one actually that has the best evidence, which um, this probably isn't really that, that surprising, um, but uh, topical heat application, um, whether it be a heating pad, topical uh, patch that you can get for like, you know, heat on the muscle and, you know, the types of aches and things like that you'll see over the counter, those um, applied to the abdomen can definitely be effective and have actually been shown in studies to be as effective as 400 milligrams of ibuprofen dosed three times a day. So um, all the other types of uh, over-the-counter herbal remedies, so things like fenugreek or um, ginger root, valerian, uh, zinc sulfate, uh, fish oil, all of those, um, when they look at the 2016 Cochrane Review, which was a really, really big study looking at basically all of their evidence, um, came up with to the conclusion that uh, it, all of the studies that have looked at these have low to very low quality evidence. So, you know, I, it's, I think... In my mind, it's one of those things that if a patient is not on their medications, otherwise healthy, and they want to try something like this that they consider to be natural or what have you, um, I, I think it's worth a try. But I think as the clinician, you need to have very real, realistic expectations of how well these therapies will work. Um, there's also some low or, and very low quality evidence um, behind acupuncture and acupressure um, in another uh um, Cochrane analysis um, that uh, was also published in 2016. So something to think about. Like again, if you have a patient who's just adamant about using natural products, you know, there's a few things that at least have some kind of data, but uh, I wouldn't put a ton of faith in their efficacy. Right. 
And by the time patients get to you, like Mike said, they've probably already tried NSAIDs. Um, but depending on what they've tried, the treatment of choice is naproxen. Um, ask them how they're taking it around menses. It's ideal to take it one to two days prior to the onset and then through the first two to three days of menstrual bleeding. Um, there's also meclofenamate, which is that approved in the U.S.? I believe so, yeah. Okay. Um, haven't seen it myself, but there's meclofenamate. Um, and there's mefen. Methanamic acid. Methanamic acid. Man, that one got me. It did. Oof. Unbelievable. Um, it's usually not given for longer than three days. Um, generally, Tylenol acetaminophen is considered inferior to other NSAIDs like naproxen um, in this treatment or for this disorder. Just be aware of that. And then when they come to you, it's probably at the um, combined hormonal contraceptive phase. Um, this would be considered if the NSAIDs or contraindicated or they don't want to be used or they're not effective. Um, just some notes. One study suggests that um, a contraceptive containing a potent progestin like levonorgestrel may be more beneficial than others. Uh, compared to cyclic regimens, continuous regimens may result in more rapid pain reduction. Um, for example, the brand name Seasonique, which is 84 tablets on and then seven tablets of placebo uh, would be an example. And to answer your question, yes, it is available in the U.S. still. Okay. But definitely, and it actually has the FDA indication for either dysmenorrhea or heavy menstrual bleeding, but uh, has its box warnings for you know, increased cardiovascular and thrombolic events. Mm. So definitely not one you see very often, but still out there. Like, can you pop into a pharmacy and find that? Or is that prescription? It's prescription. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never seen it. So I we had, I remember we used, uh, we had one patient that was getting it when I was working with Walgreens mm. year, years back. Interesting. So I have seen it before, but it's very uncommon. Um, all right. So um, we, the other option besides using the, the oral hormonal contraception is, again, going to our IUD or our Depo-Provera, our medroxyprogesterone injections. Uh, basically, you know, the, the pelvic pain of dysmenorrhea is thought to be associated with that prostaglandin release during menses. And so these agents are inducing amenorrhea, basically. So you're stopping the dysmenorrhea by stopping the the menses. So that's the, the thought so process. It seems like it'll work. It does seem effective. Um, but it, you know, it can take six to 12 months sometimes for that to fully take effect. Um, so again, it's, it's usually something that we try hormonal contraception, um, orally first and then go to these, unless the patient's just, you know, wanting these anyway for contraception use. Um, then, uh, you know, we kind of have these, uh, third line. Can't yep. have painful menses if you don't have menses. You sure can I wouldn't imagine. So. I wouldn't imagine. <laughs> well, there can be cramping and not bleeding. That's true. But yeah. But that's still. Point. Still, yeah. Is it still menses? Uh, I mean, it would, it would be from the, the cycle. F- it's part of the cycle still. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Let's just drop it there. We'll leave so we it don't, because we're, we're on the, we're literally <laughs> a teetering on the edge of looking <laughs> we're trying so to, stupid. We're trying to keep it really high level for a reason. And <laughs> we should, Cole, don't ask stupid questions. Yeah. Cole, pod. please, please stop talking. <laughs> No, my, okay. brain, my brain's too tired right now to, to think about anything past what we're already talking about. And with that, we'll move into PMS and PMDD. So PMS, premenstrual syndrome, PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, PMS is represented by a cyclic pattern of symptoms occurring in the last week of the menstrual cycle that resolve when the menstrual flow starts generally. Um, The diagnosis requires at least one moderate to severe somatic or psychiatric symptom, we'll go over those, um, to be present in that last week 
um, of the luteal phase for at least three months, and then you you can diagnose PMS, right? Mm-hmm. So some somatic symptoms would be things like abdominal bloating, breast swelling or tenderness, headache, muscle or joint pain, swelling of extremities, weight gain. Um, when it, when you would deal with like this. Um, the psychiatric type symptoms or um, the affective symptoms is how you'll oftentimes see it relayed. Um, they can be uh, outbursts of anger, um, anxiety, depression, um, difficulty with concentration or just confusion, irritability, social withdrawal. Um, but again, that's basically where the patient is having these symptoms five days before menses um, in that, you know, for the last three menstrual cycles. So it's, these symptoms are not staying with them the entire, you know, month um, or months because it's not something that that's how the difference between just underlying general depression or something along those lines versus something that's directly associated with um, something, you know, like premenstrual syndrome or um, PMDD. Right. And that kind of goes into the diagnosis of PMDD. So some women experience more severe PMS symptoms and that's effectively what PMDD is. It's just having more of those symptoms that Mike outlined. Um, at least five symptoms need to be present in that same um, time period, the last week prior to the onset of menses. Um, and they generally may improve within the first few days after onset. Um, not only that, so you can have PMS diagnosed without an effective symptom. PMDD has to be at least one of the five <laughs> symptoms needs to be an effective symptom. Um, and like Mike said, can't be attributable to another underlying um mental disorder like substance uh, use or other um, mental issues yeah so some things to consider um, some non-pharmacological treatments uh, would be things like um, just minimizing the intake of caffeine refined sugar sodium um, and also increasing exercise as well can help uh, eliminate some of the symptoms especially in regards to um, pmdd um, some vitamin or mineral supplements that have some evidence to back them up would be like B6 um, or calcium carbonate um, can help to reduce some of the physical symptoms. Uh, also, cognitive behavioral therapy um, has been shown to have some moderate efficacy in certain studies. Um, however, the problem with CBD is uh, uh, CBT, not CBD. Um, is uh, <laughs> who knows? Might be effective. Maybe it's effective might be for everything effective else. Right? For everything else. <laughs> at least that's what the <laughs> sign what says say. at the gas station. Sure does. <laughs> <laughs> and that guy doesn't lie. <laughs> um, but the uh, the frequency and the duration of therapy that needs to be done to truly get an efficacious outcome um, is not clearly been defined. So that's going to be more clinician therapist specific and patient specific um so until they kind of establish that there's not like a great guideline to go off when it comes to um, cognitive behavioral therapy specifically right so first line agents for pmdd um specifically would be ssris so we got your standard ones prozac zoloft paxil selexa lexapro we'll talk about what might be preferred um but research, interestingly, this is very interesting to me, research evaluating the dosing of these continuously or only during the luteal phase. Do you say luteal? Luteal? Yeah. Isn't that what the correct way to say it? I don't know. I think it is. I like luteal, but I like yeah. luteal. Luteal, I think is right. Um, I digress. I say it perfectly, so that's fine. Taking it only during the luteal phase has illustrated similar efficacy between the two regimens. Um of course, we know that uh, sexual dysfunction can be an issue with SSRIs. So decreased libido occurs at a higher rate with continuous dosing. So are we saying that we could just take it for a week or so and then stop? I mean, discontinuation issues, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, and this actually came up with my PA students. They were asking about this. And I, I think it's one of those things that it depends on 
kind of who you ask. Um, because, uh, like technically speaking, there's, there is both continuous dosing regimens that are available. So like fluoxetine, for example, um, they, they talk about, um, the luteal phase dosing regimens that you can do or symptom onset dosing regimens where it's, uh, so for example, the luteal phase, you would do 10 milligrams once daily during the luteal phase of menstrual, uh, cycle only beginning therapy 14 days before anticipated onset of menstruation continued, uh, to the onset of menses over the first month. And then you can increase to 20 milligrams, um, once daily during the luteal phase, but it's, it's just during that those the second two so weeks they mentioned fluoxetine specifically mm-hmm. i mean it's well, half-life the, is so long i mean it takes a while to get the steady state i mean if it works it works but I, that's I'm, so interesting yeah i we i do need to i need to look into the more the underlying mechanism for that but um yeah i think in doing the fluoxetine if, if i remember correctly i feel like fluoxetine had a formulation that actually was just like seraphim or something like that wasn't it designed for like that brand name sounds familiar, but I can't remember what it is. I'm just trying to look it up real quick, but it was designed for like uh, specifically that. Well, I'll mention um, that um, birth defects can be a concern with SSRIs. You'll see uh, in the old labeling, you'll see class C for some, class D for others. So in a large-scale analysis um, showed that birth defects, including um, anencephaly, atrial septal defects, right ventricular outflow tract obstructions, um, can be two to 3.5 times more frequent with paroxetine and fluoxetine use. Um, so that's probably where you get the class old class D recommendation from. So if that's a concern, um, then you wouldn't, you'd want to avoid fluoxetine and paroxetine in this instance and use one of the uh, others like Zoloft, Selexa or Lexapro. Yeah. The Prozac weekly. I might be thinking of something definitely different, but yeah, there's it's because it's utilizing the long half life to not do daily dosing. But right, it could be something different. I might be getting myself confused. It's very possible, AJ. Doesn't sound right. But we got selective <laughs> serotonin, <laughs> selective serotonin, norepinephrine uh, reuptake inhibitors is the last option uh, with venlafaxine. Effects are it's uh, results in a fifty percent or greater improvement in symptoms and sixty uh, percent of treated patients compared with only thirty five in the control group. So yep. it seems to be effective somewhat for the affective symptoms. Yeah. So those are first line. We also have, of course, some combined hormonal contraceptives that can be used. So the brand name Yaz is FDA approved to improve um, premenstrual, premenstrual symptoms in PMDD, as well as amethyst, which is a newer one that I actually see a lot. Maybe it's not new, but I see it a lot. Um, but it's been studied, um, resulting in a 30 to 59% improvement in PMDD symptoms as well. I would tend to think, uh, depending, I guess it depends on what their somatic symptoms are. Because like with the bloating and Good things point. like that, I yep. would go with drosperinone because yep. of the anti-androgenic effects. Yep. So I think it depends. That, again, needs to be patient-specific. Everything's patient-specific. There should never the be... bloating any, isn't estrogen-related? I, I believe, because uh, the drosperinone, that's why it has like the... Um, oh, yes. Like the, it's almost got like a spironolactone type effect to it because that's why it's got the potassium sparing and um we're just dealing with the androgenic activity which you know instead of increasing aldosterone then you know infecting aldosterone specifically it's decreasing the androgen activity which shuts all that stuff off too so yep. it has like a diuretic effect to it yep. yeah because i think bloating and acne specifically i always think just would be the one to switch to gotcha 
Um, but yeah, so if hormonal contraception is, is still not enough to take care of the issues, there are um, a little bit more intensive therapies. So for example, like the gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist known as Luprolide um, or Lupron Depot. Um, and the, this is usually something that's saved for a patient who has already tried these other options and um, was not getting symptom relief. Um, it's definitely going to improve the premenstrual emotional symptoms as well as those somatic symptoms like bloating, breast tenderness, things like that. Um, adverse effects... Uh, we want to think things very similar to what we would think of with like um, perimenopausal or menopausal symptoms. So like vaginal dryness, hot flashes, bone demineralization, things of that nature. Um, and because it, it is pretty expensive, um, it's an IM administration. Uh, you know, it's it's got kind of limited use and we definitely want to utilize some of the other options first. But um, if those are not effective and uh, we definitely need to get the symptoms under control, then this we have this in our back pocket. Yep. So there you go. Anything uh, else that we have not? We just gone touched over? on a lot of menstrual-related disorders, didn't we? And <laughs> it's we, we've t- we, I don't think we've done some of those before, have we? I don't know. I, I don't think so. You know, I'm not the guy that remembers what we've done. I know. If we had, it's been forever. So. Yeah. So yes. Um, so make sure after you, if you're again if you're a member of freece.com, uh, you have an unlimited membership. Go uh, use the password hormone and uh, take the post activity test. Get your ACP accredited uh, continuing education, uh, one hour. And uh, um, we definitely appreciate FreeCE for partnering with us again. Um, also, a big shout out to our our uh, main sponsor pearls.com, um, p y r l s dot com slash core consult rx. It is a very uh, up to date and, and new um, aesthetically pleasing to the eye um, drug information app. Um, I definitely think that uh, it's going to be a very, very um, solid uh, website and app in the, as time goes on and going to give the the big guys a run for their money because it's definitely very easy to use. And they're adding content every single uh, month. So some great charts, really good up-to-date guidelines, as well as just standard drug info information. Um, so definitely check them out. We really appreciate Pearls for um, continuing to support the podcast. So make sure you give them uh, a try. They have a, a really good free um, version of the app that you can use and assess whether you want to go further than that. But big thanks to them. Um, thank you guys so much. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything like that, uh, make sure you send us an email. You can text us directly by going to the number that's in the show notes. Reach in us on any of the social media platforms. And um, if you want more traditional style lectures, obviously check out the Patreon where you can get um, my uh, PA uh, lectures that I do uh, for the, all the different disease states for my PA students. Um, we have like probably 110, 115 lectures on there, different disease states. You get all the PowerPoints um, that I have as well. And uh, it's very, very cost effective in my opinion. Um, so make sure you check that out. And uh, just appreciate you guys sticking with us and listening to the podcast for all this time as we're steadily approaching uh, the, uh, what is it, uh, this will be four years, but you have just decided last time, I think five-year mark, four-year mark, something we like that. We started in 2018, so whatever yeah, this so is. so whatever that is. Um, so yeah, it's uh, approaching that five, four-year mark. Yeah, four-year mark. AJ is my math guy. <laughs> Actually, I think January 2023 will be the five years. Okay. So I think we hit four, we're approaching five. One, two. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Are we, this is ridiculous. I'm so brain dead isn't it? after working and everything. This is why we sound like morons at this point. Um, so yeah, the, this is, uh, you know, it's been a, a good time for us as well. So I appreciate everyone listening and sticking with us and all of our nonsense. Anything else, boys? That's all I got. All right. Y'all have a great night.